0: We're looking at Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. If you will join me in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, we come to you needy and hungry. I come to you weak. And I ask you, Lord, we ask you that you would work by the power of your Spirit. Show us the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In the inspired scriptures this morning, by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. October is a very significant month for Bible-believing, Protestant, Evangelical Christians. It's a very significant month in church history because October 31st is a very significant date in church history. Specifically, October 31st, 1517, 505 years ago. And if you don't know what happened, what happened was a monk, a Roman Catholic monk named Martin Luther, who had been reading the New Testament and had come to see that the Bible teaches that salvation, our right standing before God, is by God's grace alone, through faith. Uh, He had written down a number of issues, disputations with the Catholic Roman Catholic Church at the time, and he went and nailed these to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany, thus beginning what we now call the Protestant Reformation. And many are familiar with that story and the story of the Reformation in Germany, in Europe, uh, in Luther's teaching, in particular, the letter to the Romans, played a very important role. What people are not so familiar with is the story of the Reformation in neighboring France, where the letter to the Hebrews played a very vital role. And as people began to read the scriptures and to see what this beautiful letter says, about the once for all offering of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, his once for all perfect sacrifice and his perfect priesthood, the fact that his sacrifice is complete, they began to come out of the Roman Catholic Church and began to charge the Roman Catholic Church with teaching falsehood. In France, uh, the response was devastating. Under the authority of the king, the Roman Catholic Church at the time uh, proclaimed uh, a three-step process for all those who were turning to Protestantism. Number one, come back to the Mother Church. Number two, if you don't want to do that, leave the country. Number three, if you stay, we will burn you. And many believers gave up their lives in order to hold to what Hebrews is going to show us today. I, too, was raised Roman Catholic, as many of you know. And in my journey of reading the Bible, of understanding the gospel, Hebrews was very crucial for me. Of course, I didn't know anything about the French Reformation back then. Hebrews 10, in particular, was very crucial for me. As I began to see here that the once for all sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ is something very different from what the Roman Catholics teach about purgatory, a suffering to cleanse people from sin after death, or the Roman Catholic teaching on the Eucharist which says that Christ must be offered on the altar again and again. And for all of us, we wrestle with these questions, don't we? Can I earn God's forgiveness? Have I done enough? Is there enough in me that could procure his pardon? Well, today as we look at Hebrews 10, we'll see that the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, his once-for-all offering, is infinitely sufficient, perfect in every way, and secures our forgiveness, sanctification, and perfection. You might remember as we're looking through this section of Hebrews, chapters 7 to 10, it's the theological center of Hebrews. The author is repeating to his people, these people who attempted to go back to Judaism, he is telling them that in Christ, we have a better priest who offers a better sacrifice by which he enters a better sanctuary and brings us into a better covenant. In other words, three words, Jesus is better, and as we come to chapter 10, we're coming to a mountaintop. really, in Hebrews. This is a text that sums up everything so far. It leads forward to everything that comes after this. We've seen that Jesus is the better priest. We've seen that Jesus has entered the better sanctuary. We've seen that he is the mediator of a better covenant, and today we will see the infinitely better sacrifice that he has offered one that guarantees our forgiveness, that makes us fit for God's presence. And as we see this, our hearts ought to feel a great assurance, confidence, and boldness that comes from his sacrifice. So we're going to look at three reasons why Christ's sacrifice is better. I'll show you the structure right now, it's very simple. First, we'll see that Christ's sacrifice is better because it fulfills God's purpose. It fulfills God's purpose. That is in verses 1 to 10. Then we'll see that his sacrifice is better because of his posture. That's in verses 11 to 14. And finally, we'll see Christ's sacrifice is better because of the Spirit's promise. That's in verses 15 to 18. So we begin by seeing how Christ's sacrifice fulfills God's purpose. Let's read verses 1 to 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You might remember the congregation to which Hebrews was given. It was originally a sermon preached by a concerned pastor. And these people were Jewish Christians who were under persecution and pressure for their faith. And they were being tempted to abandon their faith in Christ and go back to the old covenant law and its sacrifices. And the author, throughout this letter, throughout this sermon, has been arguing and seeking to persuade them, you can't go back. That was a shadow. It was a preparatory, provisional season in God's plan. Now we are in the fullness. And to go from the fullness, the reality, back to the shadow would be foolish and disastrous. So about 15 years ago, Nishika and I were in a relationship, getting ready to be married. We were in a long-distance relationship in two different cities in India. Then we got engaged, and I moved to Toronto for work. And while I was in Canada, I had these precious pictures of my bride-to-be whom I was looking forward to marry in seven months. And I held on to those pictures every day, everywhere I went. Oh, she's so beautiful. Well, we got married. We've been married for a number of years now. I don't know where those pictures are. I must confess. But you know what? That's a good thing. Because I have the reality in front of my eyes every day. And can you imagine a situation where I tell Nishika, you know what, you're just not as nice as those pictures that I had. And I just wanna spend my time looking at these pictures. And, and maybe, you know, I go out to a coffee shop or shut myself in a room, I say, oh, how beautiful she is. I love you. you know? That wouldn't go well for me. You see, those pictures were not the reality. They were just a shadow. And and that's what these people were beginning to do, was to go back from the reality to sacrifices that were merely a picture, a shadow of a far greater thing to come. Those sacrifices could never make them perfect. Right, did you see what he says there? He says, the sacrifices that are continually offered every year could never make perfect those who draw near. What does it mean to be made perfect? Uh, the way that the author is using the language of perfection here in Hebrews, to be made perfect, means that they could never be made fit for the presence of God. To be made perfect is to be made completely fit for God's presence. And those sacrifices which were offered again and again could never do that for them. What's the argument that he is making to show that these sacrifices were only a shadow, that they could never make you perfect? Well, he says that they've been repeated, right? Did you see uh, what he says in verse 2? He says, otherwise, if they could make you perfect, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? The fact that these sacrifices are being repeated over and over again means that they can't make you clean, they can't make you perfect. So I was ill earlier this week, some of you have been praying for me, thank you for your prayers. I went to the doctor and the doctor prescribed antibiotics and she said to come back in for a follow-up. So on the last day of this round of antibiotics I went in for a follow-up and at the follow-up she says, "Oh, we're going to do another round of medication. I said, Why? And she said, because the first round hasn't worked completely. You need another round in order to make you well. Repetition. You see, the the disease was still in me. The first round of medication wasn't enough to solve my problem. That's why it needed to be repeated. And, And it's the same with these sacrifices. They didn't get the job done. The fact that they were repeated over and over again reminded the people of the fact that they were still sinful, that the disease hadn't been cured. In the sacrifices, in fact, there was again and again a reminder of their sinfulness, a reminder of sins every year. Verse 3, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And the author makes it plain in verse 4, what he's been saying all throughout Hebrews. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Think about it. The old covenant stood in place for over a thousand years, well over a thousand years. Every day, morning and evening, sacrifices were offered probably over a million sacrifices that had been offered. And you think about the fact that with each bull that was slaughtered, uh, it was about 3.5 liters of blood that was shed. 3.5 liters of blood for each bull. For each goat or sheep, it was about a liter of blood. A whole river Sea, ocean of blood spilled over, over a thousand years. In fact, in the temple, they had built some kind of a plumbing system during Pas- uh, to be used during Passover to ensure that all of the blood spilled from sacrifices would be properly drained into the ne- neighboring Kidron Valley. And all of that blood, all of those animal sacrifices had one message. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Saying to the worshipers again and again, this should be you. And this will be you unless a better sacrifice comes. Unless a better offering is made. You see, the blood of dumb, unwilling animals could never really fulfill God's purpose. They could never really be our substitute. Their debts could never really compensate for our sin. We needed a sacrifice far better, one that truly fulfills God's purpose and accomplishes our cleansing. And that's where the author leads us in verses 5 to 10. Do you see? that the old covenant sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, could never take away sin. And therefore, he says, here's what Christ has come to do. And he quotes from Psalm 40, Psalm 40 that was read earlier this morning. Psalm 40 was written by David. As you know, David's life itself, David himself, was a picture and a preview of someone who pointed forward to a greater king who would come, from his line. His life forms a pattern that points forward to Jesus. And here in this psalm, Psalm 40, David is reflecting upon this fact. He says, sacrifices were not ultimately God's desire. God takes no pleasure in the blood of these animals being spilt. They were a necessary concession because of our sin. They were a temporary payment being made to hold and stay the wrath of God against our sin. In fact, as David says these words in Psalm 40, he's probably reflecting on an incident uh, that we see in 1 Samuel chapter 15 with the previous king of uh, Israel before David, King Saul. King Saul disobeyed God, willfully broke God's law, God's word, and then casually offers sacrifices, thinking that this will make things right. It's all right. I can offer a sacrifice. And God's response to Saul in chapter 15, verse 22 of 1 Samuel was this. I desire obedience, not sacrifice. God's purpose, God's intention for human beings is Obedience. That's what David is reflecting on here. Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Have you seen that in verse 5? When he says, a body you have prepared for me, if you look at the original psalm, verse 40, he says, years you have dug out for me. It, it's a way of speaking metaphorically. He's saying, you have given me this body to obey you. You have given me years to hear your word and obey. God desires obedience. And thence David says, I have come to do your will, O God, as I am called to, as your scripture commands me to. Of course, this is not ultimately fulfilled in David's life. In fact, David's words point forward to someone who would come and truly fulfill these words, who would render the obedience that God desires. You see, that's what God desires of all of us, isn't it? Obedience. God doesn't want some false piety, you know, us coming and trying to behave religious. He wants us to be those who obey his word. But he has to do something for us to enable us to obey his word. And that's what we see happening here. The author of Hebrews takes this psalm, David's words, from Psalm 40, and shows us that it's been fulfilled by Jesus. See, that's why he says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Verse seven, behold, I have come, to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In, in the original uh, Hebrew of Psalm 40, uh, again in the Greek text here that we have in Hebrews, the, the order of the words there is slightly different. This is a smooth, uh, smoothening out in English. But the, the way that the words are structured, he says, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book, it is written of Jesus. The entire Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. All of Scripture points forward to Him, prophesies of Him, predicts of His coming. And He came in fulfillment of it with this purpose to do God's will. To do God's will. Jesus accomplished God's will and purpose. He is God the Son from all eternity, fully God. He took on human flesh, the body that his father prepared for him. He was born into this world as fully God and fully man, just like you and me, but without sin. And then in that human body, in his humanity, he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, perfectly obedient to God in every way, But his greatest and ultimate act of obedience was when he submitted perfectly to the will of God and offered his body as the perfect sacrifice. The body that God had prepared for him to be the perfect sacrifice for sinners, to be our substitute, to fulfill God's purpose. And having lived the perfect life in the garden of Gethsemane, as he prepared to face the terrifying wrath of God against sinners, Jesus cried out, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Do you hear? I have come to do your will, O God. And then he went to the cross as our perfect representative who had obeyed in every way where we have failed. He died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice, the only one who could be the substitute for sinners. And by his death, as he poured out his blood and died, he accomplished what no animal sacrifice could ever do, which was God's ultimate purpose, to bring about perfect cleansing for all who will turn from sin and trust in him. You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, verse 8. These are offered according to the law. He covers there the entire spectrum of sacrifices that were offered under the old covenant system. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Do you see God's purpose here? Do you see God's purpose? Was these old covenant sacrifices were put in place temporarily to teach us something, to point forward, and then Christ comes and he performs God's will perfectly. He is the perfect sacrifice, his obedience as the suffering servant consists in his sacrifice. And by God's will and purpose, all of us who trust him have been, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Brother or sister in Christ, if if you are in Christ this morning, this is you. You have been sanctified. You might remember under the old covenant law and its, its purity code, there were three different statuses. The status of unclean, unfit for God's presence, defiled. The status of clean, made fit for God's presence, able to enter the presence of God, draw near to him. But further than that, the status of holy, sanctified, Set apart from all unclean things and fully devoted to God's service. Jesus, by his death, the author is saying, by his once for all offering, has not only taken us who were unclean and made us clean, but he has made us holy. It's been done. It's finished. We have been sanctified. This is something that has happened. It is done. You might remember in Luke chapter five, the story where Jesus is walking along and this leper comes to him and and he says, you know, he's covered in leprosy and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. And at once, the leprosy is gone from him. Friends, that's a picture of us we come to him stained, not with leprosy on the outside, but with leprosy on the inside. We come to him as those who sin has defiled from head to toe, unclean. We know this intuitively. We know that our sin makes us dirty. We know that our sin makes us unclean. We know that in and of ourselves, we could never find a way into God's presence. And and so we fly to this savior And cry out, Lord, are you willing? Make me clean. And he says, I am willing. Be clean. By my blood, all your sins are washed away. It is finished, he said. All our sins, all of it. And this is the difference between every other religion and biblical Christianity. You see, every other religion tells us what we must do for God. Biblical Christianity cancels all that and says what God has done for you. As one pastor said, it's the difference between the religion of do and the religion of done. And so as sinners, this is what we then do. In faith, we look to the cross. As you feel the stain and sting of sin as you stumble and struggle and fall, as we're tempted in so many ways, we look to the cross where we are made clean, where we see that God has sanctified us because of Jesus' offering, that he no longer views us like the rest of the world, that he no longer views us in the condition that we once were. No, he views us as perfect. He views you as perfect as holy, as spotless because of the perfect sacrifice of his own son that fulfills his perfect purpose, our cleansing. Christ's sacrifice is better because it fulfills God's purpose. Next, we see that his sacrifice is better because of his posture, because of Christ's posture. Look at verses 11 to 14. those who are being sanctified. And here again we see this contrast between the priests who stand and Christ, our great high priest, who sat. In the old covenant, the priests were always standing because their work was never finished. You know, uh, some time ago I went to a um, store, digital communications store that shall remain unnamed. And it used to be that you could go into the store, and then you're going to see an agent, and you get your ticket, and then they call your number, and then you go and sit down. Right? You and the agent are seated across the table from each other, and, and, and they work with you and you know do your thing. I went, and the store has been remodeled now. We've got new uniforms and, and everything looks really nice. But I just looked around, and there was no place to sit. And so I'm going through this long process where I have to renew my contract and, and change my plan and everything. And the whole time me and the agent are standing. And, and I asked her, I said, uh, is there any place to sit down? She yeah, said, No, sir. I was like, okay. So I said, so, you know, I'm here for a little while. What about you? Like, do you like how long is your shift? She said, eight hours. So I said, so Eight hours, you're standing the whole time? And she said, yes, sir, only sit down when work is finished. No place to sit there. That's kind of like how the temple was and the tabernacle. You can look at all the furnishings of the Old Covenant tabernacle, of the Old Covenant temple. You you know what you wouldn't find? You wouldn't find a chair. Because under the Old Covenant, the priests are always standing. Why? Why? because their work is never finished. Not this priest. Every priest stands offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. Again, our, our, our author here is picking up Psalm 110. Do you hear his favorite passage, Psalm 110? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died the perfect sacrifice, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice on the cross, defeated Satan's sin, and death, rose from the dead victorious, ascended into heaven, exalted on high and sat down at the right hand of God. And now all that uh, he is waiting for to be complete, all that we are waiting for is the day when God brings all things to an end and every enemy is brought under his feet and he will rule and reign forever. His work is done. And what does that mean for you and I? It means what it says in verse 14, by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The fact that the Son of God is seated at God's right hand means that his offering has perfected all who trust him for all time. That's a staggering statement, brothers and sisters. It's mind-boggling. We have been perfected. Every day, we are becoming what the cross has already ensured that we will be. And here is where Holy Scripture stands firmly against the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Do you see? Because the Roman Catholic dogma is that after death, there will be this place called purgatory in which the souls of believers will go, where they will suffer And under that suffering, experience cleansing after death, being cleansed from sin in order to be made uh, fit for the presence of God. Well, here scripture clearly stands against that. This verse stands clearly against the Roman Catholic teaching on the Eucharist, that at the mass, Roman Catholics teach, the, the bread and the wine are transformed literally, physically they would say, into the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ's sacrifice must be repeated and perpetuated again and again. But here the author of Hebrews says, a single offering, once for all, takes away sin, makes us perfect. So the Roman Catholic teaching on the mass denies the once for all sacrifice of Christ. No, in the Lord's Supper, when we come to the Lord's table, we are simply looking back and remembering that once-for-all sacrifice, that Jesus' body was given once to pay for sins, that his blood was shed once for our forgiveness. And as we think about the fact that his single offering has perfected those who are being sanctified, that's us, what a sense of relief that is. What a sense of joy and peace it gives us. The sense of confidence and boldness that we can have before the presence of God. Perfected. Completely fit for the presence of God. It's been done. It's who we are. That's our identity. That is reality. That is our destiny. Does that mean that Christians don't fail, that we don't sin, that we're already perfect and we don't stumble or fall? No, it doesn't mean that, right? That's why you got to look at the second half of the verse. Did you notice? He says, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ has guaranteed that before God's eyes, you are now perfect and that one day you will be fully perfect, we will be fully perfect, even though we sin and we fail now, he is working to sanctify us, to conform us to what we really are and what we will be forever. So we are sanctified, and we are being sanctified. We are perfected for all time. We are being perfected. And that's amazing, because we have the confidence that all things in our lives, God is working all things in our lives to this end. Even trials, great and weighty trials, and sickness, even our temptations, even when we fall and fail, God is working even in these things in your life, dear believer, to make you more and more holy, to make you what you truly are and one day will forever be. Imagine that. That is reality. Lift your eyes up to that. The fact that before God, you are perfect. And you will be perfect. One day we'll stand in his presence and, and we will be truly perfect the holy creatures in the image of God that we were made to be. No stain of sin, perfectly reflecting His glory, holy like Him, pure in thought and word and deed, never again falling into the sin that you hate so much, never again hurting the people that you love so much, holy, like Christ, forever. The Christian life is hard. The road often seems long. There are twists and turns where we stumble and we fail and we fall along the way. But our arrival at this destination is guaranteed by the once for all offering of the Son of God himself on the cross. And our right standing before God, our perfection is as certain as the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is seated at God's right hand even now. His sacrifice is better because it fulfills God's purpose. It is better because of his seated posture. And finally, Christ's sacrifice is better because of the Spirit's promise, the Spirit's promise. Look at verses 15 to 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so we come back, the author brings us back to these glorious promises of the new covenant that Jesus has inaugurated by his death for all who trust him. Verse 16, this first promise here is that God in the new covenant, in and through Christ, gives us new obedient hearts. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. In the old covenant the law was written on tablets of stone external to the people, standing there as a mirror reflecting how sinful they are, bringing condemnation but never able to change them. The people's hearts were bad. In the new covenant, when we come to our Lord Jesus Christ, he writes his law on our hearts, which means that for those of us who are in Christ, innately, internally, from within us, there is this principle that there is a desire to obey God. Not just a desire to obey God, but the ability to walk in his ways. Since power has been broken in the lives of believers, we're no longer slaves to it. We can truly live lives pleasing to God. He enables and empowers our obedience. And you know, oftentimes I, I, I meet Christians, believers, sometimes this has been me, myself, in my own life, where I wonder, oh, am I truly saved? Did I, did I, did the, the, has the Lord really done something? And, and, you know, am I right with God? And I'll often say to your brother or sister, let's sit down. You know, let's think about who you were. Think about who you were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Think about what your life would be if you didn't know the Lord. Look at all these evidences of grace. Look at even the fact that you have this tender desire to please and obey God. Where do you think that comes from? Comes from the Lord. And, And in our pursuit of holiness, in our desire to walk in righteousness, we're not going against something in ourselves. No, we're struggling to be who we really are. Struggling to be what God has really made us to be, perfected for all time. He puts his law on our hearts. He writes his word on our minds that we might walk in his ways. He enables our obedience. And then the author reminds us of this central promise of the new covenant, verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's the heart of the new covenant forgiveness of sins our sins they are many but his mercy is more and there is nowhere else that we can find this nowhere else where we can obtain this nothing that we can do can erase the debt of our sin nothing that we can offer could ever pay the price of our many sins more numerous than the hairs on our heads. Truly like the leper, we are stained from head to toe. But he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. There no longer remains an offering for sin. Jesus Christ has done it all. So maybe you're here and you haven't recognized this morning you talk a lot about sin. You see, we're all created by a holy God. We have sinned against our creator. That's a reality for all of us. We know this. Because of our sin, we stand guilty and deserving of condemnation and eternal punishment. But God has provided his own son. Fully God and fully man, the Lord Jesus Christ Who died on the cross, taking upon himself the penalty that sinners deserve. Turning away the wrath of God for all who will flee from sin and trust in him. And this promise is available to you this morning. You can be free from the penalty of your sins this morning. You can be cleansed from sin today, dear friend. He says, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. And so if you turn from your sin and flee to the Savior in faith, this promise is for you. Even my sin, even your sin, yes. As one pastor said, there is more grace in Christ Then there is sin in you. So, would you come to him? Come to Jesus. Let his perfect offering sanctify you, perfect you forever. You know, thinking of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, whom I mentioned at the beginning, he once had this dream, he often would, you know, in the process of. All his work fall into these fears and terrors and anxieties at times. And he had this dream. And in his dream, he saw Satan. I don't know what Satan looked like. But Satan was standing there before him with this long scroll, written on the front and on the back. And Satan was busy writing. Writing, he flips over, keeps writing, flips over, keeps writing, keeps writing. Apparently, what Satan was writing were all Luther's sins. And he keeps writing and writing and Luther finally says to him it is all true Satan all true and many more sins that I have committed in my life that are known to God alone but write this at the bottom of your list the blood of Jesus Christ God's son cleanses us from all sin Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the perfect offering of your Son, for the cleansing, the sanctification, the perfection that we receive in him. May we cling to him by faith now and always. In his name, amen.